Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. In this episode of IT Visionaries, our guest is Amber Balde, CEO and co-founder of Clover, and one of the leading voices in enterprise blockchain. Formerly a blockchain program lead at JPMorgan Chase, Amber spent three years working with some of the world's largest enterprises to understand how blockchain can drive business transformation. She left to found Clover, a company that is solving a huge problem, how businesses can build blockchain apps easily and at scale. In this episode, we deep dive into blockchain for the enterprise, building blockchain apps, cryptocurrency, and some of her favorite blockchain applications for the near future. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. The Lightning Platform is a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone is empowered to build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. We have an amazing guest today. We're going to be talking about blockchain and how you can use it in the enterprise, plus many, many, many other things involving blockchain, which obviously is a hot topic these days. You know, we have a lot to discuss, and you are one of the experts in blockchain out right now. You have a startup, Clover, that you're the CEO of. Tell me a little bit about Clover. Yeah, Clover is, uh, we're a very new company actually, just started in May. We're solving problems that we've been learning about for, you know, several years, if not our entire career. My co-founder and I have worked in information security and finance and enterprise software design and privacy design and all these kinds of areas that we're finding in this convergence. It's becoming this, this blockchain space right now in a way that, you know, you really couldn't predict that this would be the moment for those skill sets to converge. And so, yeah, I think we have a, a unique perspective about what some of the challenges to various industries are and, and what it's going to take to drive adoption. So we're hopefully designing software and, and tools that will help make people's lives easier and, and make this stuff real. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of the problem right now, right? Is like it doesn't feel real yet. I think people are like talking about how it's real, but it is real to some people. And before we get too deep into Clover, I mean, do you think that like businesses are really ready for blockchain? Like, is it really starting to happen or is it kind of hype at this point? I think it is starting to happen. I think our, our expectations are very high because, well, not only because of all of the press releases and consulting firm white papers, but, you know, if you were looking at a technology like artificial intelligence and something that you can deploy within a specific product line and then see what the results are and iterate on it relatively quickly within your own organization, you can see how that might mature at your own pace. But when we start looking at distributed or decentralized technologies that require different parties to come together and kind of create a network and bootstrap this thing before it really starts demonstrating value, it's a, a hard lift to say that, that we're going to do an entire infrastructure modernization project when you're not even really sure what the business benefits are going to be yet. Yeah. I mean, I think you know part of the issue is that I think there's just a lot of you know, apprehension kind of at the top levels and kind of confusion about what the applications could be. Like, what are some of the industries where you think this could really be kind of an easy win or industries where it would be such an obvious kind of use case that they'll kind of lead from the front or folks that are doing that right now? 
It's really a spectrum. The way that the the technology as it is today can mean many things. And you see various companies now that said they were blockchain companies and now say they're distributed ledger companies that, you know, tomorrow will say they're distributed data companies. You know, you can kind of see what you want to see in there. And so you can go all the way from something that's really a centrally coordinated data distribution mechanism where, you know, you might be simply re-architecting the way that data is stored and accessed across trust boundaries with a very strong central controller, whether that's an industry utility or an elected company or startup or new enterprise or ERP or whatever on one end. And on the other end, you can slide all the way down to where you're trying to tokenize assets and move them across. At that point, you probably do need something that looks a little more like a real blockchain. And then you can go out into the public blockchain space where you have an entirely different kind of connectivity between people that have extremely minimal amounts of trust between them and might not even know who they are and therefore have to be incentivized with this kind of cryptocurrency to work together to secure a network. They're entirely different architectures technically, and they're solving different human coordination problems. So what about something like banking or manufacturing or those industries that, you know, historically have been, I don't want to say non-innovative because there's tons of innovations happening in those, but I think that things where, you know, blockchain might either be a really obvious fit or maybe not as obvious of a fit. Yeah, and I, I think why I kind of delved into the technology there in just such a, an agnostic way across industries is that it really does kind of feel like an internet-connected database. And in that, you can see whatever it is you want to see or build whatever you want to build. And so the earliest applications, we did see more in the finance industry because I think they were kind of teed up to it because of the potential disruption of public cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. They, they were paying more attention early on. And then the intellectual leap to settlement of other types of financial assets assets. That's when you're, you know, got the it's blockchain, not Bitcoin kind of thing back in 2015, 2016. That took off. And so the the education system started earlier there. Almost immediately, people started talking about sharing uh, medical records within the healthcare industry, and then the supply chain use cases as well. So again, we're talking about bringing together collections of entities where they need to move data between themselves, where historically you needed some sort of centralized escrow agent or intermediary to make the handoff. A lot of times that was to preserve privacy between different entities that shouldn't necessarily have access to each other's records, but they all decided to trust one collective third party. And we can see how that's worked out in situations, you know, like Equifax and others, the more of these kind of data lakes that we create, the more technical risk that we're creating. So the ability to unbundle that data is really relevant across any industry at this point. Yeah, I mean, for the enterprise, it seems things like you're talking about with the data lake where you have a huge amount of information in one area that someone is holding for both sides where there's just multiple opportunities there for there to be a breach, right? It's like data has to go in, data has to be held by this entity, and then data has to go out. Not only are there, you know, opportunities for the actual companies whose data it is, but also, like you said, with Equifax, you're talking about they have everyone's stuff. How would the blockchain be able to kind of like be the be the ledger for all of that information in a way that's more secure than what's out there now? Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully it's not by trying to dump all of that data onto some sort of blockchain itself. I think that's a terrible idea from a data privacy standpoint. But using a 
blockchain or distributed ledger as this kind of connective tissue between different decentralized data stores, that can get really, really interesting. And at that point, you're, you're shuttling around pointers to information that's still either stored uh, off-chain in a more traditional database or over time, probably more permission chains that are kind of connected to each other. If you look at the way that the internet evolved, you know, people were standing up their own e-commerce site or writing their own little mini blog or publishing their own news. You didn't get 20 companies that came together and said, why don't we create a full supply chain before we launch an e-commerce site? It's probably going to be a similar kind of organic evolution of each institution trying to solve a real business problem that they have. Perhaps that's simple auditing for fraud prevention. Maybe it's decentralized document signing within your own organization or across your own sub-legal entities. I mean, there are a lot of things that you can do without needing to get together. 20 different banks or healthcare providers would have you around a table with a bunch of lawyers before you decide that you're going to, to start the development process. And fostering that kind of organic growth and innovation will make it a lot easier to really innovate across the industry if you think of a blockchain more as that kind of connective tissue than the destination for everyone's shared data. Yeah, that's great. Switching to, to apps, like kind of walk me through how companies could create blockchain apps. What are the steps that would go into that? And obviously, there's not one you know single way to do that. But how would companies look at creating blockchain apps for certain use cases? Right. I think that the idea that these applications need to be as fully featured as today's current applications, there's this idea that you need to recreate everything within smart contracts and replace every bit of code that you've ever written. And that's really dissuasive, very expensive, and also very error prone, given that it's very difficult right now to patch and modify and roll back anything that happens in a blockchain. I mean, it's, it's immutable by design, right? So instead of thinking about it as like a new web app that we're trying to launch, uh, at the enterprise level, it's more likely that we'll see very terse, small kind of what are called smart contracts. And a smart contract is really just a record of state mutations that are stored immutably such that anyone can replay through all of these state transitions and end up at the exact same endpoint. So you, you achieve consensus about where we are in this state machine collectively. Now, that's, that's a very low-level way to look at it, but those transitions could be steps in a workflow or in a business process or in a, a document management system or in a post-trade uh, derivatives lifecycle. You know, it could be almost anything. But keeping those very small and then having a traditional application experience around it that accesses that robust information only when it needs to, that's really the way that we can get to more feature-rich applications more quickly. So you're saying that companies should start building kind of like MVPs of this without like the feature-rich kind of stuff that they already have, right? I mean, basically... You don't want to kind of like spend all of your, your time and effort trying to build something that's a direct replica of something that you already have just with, you know, blockchain technology. You want to start with something that's like an easier use case. I think what I'm saying is that the first thing to do is a very in-depth business analysis of what your current processes are and picking out the finite points where you reach milestones in those business processes where you would want to make a permanent record that something has changed. And then those are the processes that you ensconce in a, a smart contract or distributed application because you're trying to update someone else 
across the trust boundary again, that this, this state has changed. This has gone from pending to completed, right? You need to identify very thoughtfully what those transitions are that you need to record. And then all of the rest of your application around it can be written in Java and, you know, have a good day. <laughs> like you don't need to try to re-architect the entire user experience into some sort of smart contract. It's dissuasive. So you, you just, you're not going to put everything on blockchain, right? Like you're not going to take every single piece of data that you have within the company and put it on blockchain tomorrow. You're going to choose, you know, different things. Like if you wanted to put your, you know, ERP or CRM on blockchain, like what, what does that look like? Like, what are the use cases for that? Like, why would you, why would a company want to do that? I know it, it feels very uh, nebulous, right? Because people haven't really seen these in action and they don't understand what the full stack probably looks like. But if you imagine that you have a more traditional data store that you can iterate over very quickly if you're doing more complex data analysis or that's duped into wherever you're doing AI from in, in a non-RDBMS, that's fine. But you might want to take a distributed ledger or a blockchain and connect some of those various databases together. You wouldn't dump the data from the database onto the blockchain blockchain, but you would be sending the instructions to access or retrieve bits of that information. Essentially, like you can think of something like a decentralized Kafka messaging bus. You're able to access the right information to which you're entitled. Every time that access happens, perhaps that's the event that then is stored on the blockchain that this entity with this public key accessed this specific bit of information. And according to a time beacon that we have, it, this looked like the time that that happened. And then that's the log that would persist, not the, the data itself. And then you would use some sort of out-of-band way to then actually move that data bit back across the network, either point-to-point, -point, or there's a variety of other ways that you could do this to get the data to the counterparty that then needs to act on that data itself. So what do you think are some of the challenges that companies are going to have with building blockchain applications? Like, I mean, obviously, there's a large need for this in the not too distant future. And, you know, what are the things that people are going to screw up? I mean, lots of things, I'm sure we'll, we'll see. Most of the code that's being written right now is probably going to be throwaway work in three years. I mean, the, the underlying protocols are evolving so quickly, and there's too many of them. There's no standardized kind of TCP IP of blockchain at this point. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess out there. So it's worth experimenting with, but you need to be cautious of how vendor sticky you become, or you might end up with, you know, the, the beta max of, <laughs> of blockchains in your organization. So, Wait, so hold on, yeah. dive, dive a little bit more into that, because that's really interesting. So just from a standpoint of like where you're building, what you're building on and things like that, I mean, I, so kind of what you're saying is like, if you were to choose a vendor that you're building with or something that might sound good kind of right now, but basically you're going to need to be out in the market and like checking out what's going on, what's staying, staying up to date, because a lot of that technology is going to shift so fast that IT leaders or tech leaders just need to be aware of like the new things that are coming down the pipe. Yeah, I, I think each industry is kind of standing up its own kind of AOL walled garden version. And you see some vendors become more predominant in, in one industry versus another industry because they've kind of chosen to tackle that vertical. But obviously the world is connected across industries and, and we need to cross those boundaries. So at some point, people want to reach outside of the AOL slash CompuServe kind of gardens and, and just get on the World Wide Web. That doesn't mean committing things to public blockchains. It means just having connectivity and interoperability between various different protocols, which right now don't really talk to each other. 
Yeah, that makes sense. What are some other challenges that you kind of see in the not too distant future? I mean, identity is the elephant in the room always. How you represent the organizational identity when it comes to business, the way that organizations, as, as I'm, I'm sure you know, have reorganizations internally very often, you know, and a company is often a collection of many different legal entities that reside in different jurisdictions, and they acquire other companies and they divest things. And none of that is represented in the types of pilots that you see today, where a single node or a server represents a company, like that is not a useful data model. And there are some stabs to make it more granular, but but the ability to manage and maintain that as organizational identity evolves doesn't exist yet. In, in a similar way, personal identity on the consumer side, there's not a single source of truth, but there's not even a decentralized source of truth that you can reach out to. So we still would rely on current identity providers, which in this case, we're probably talking about authentication providers, which is probably you know Google and Facebook, to attest to who a human is. So any, any kind of application where you need to prove that a single human is just one person is incredibly complex to do in these kinds of systems. They're, they're relatively easily gamed in what's called civil attacks. One person can pretend to be many different people. Until that's solved, that's why you don't want to start building things like voting applications for things that matter on blockchain now. And many of the public blockchains you'll see are shifting from something called proof of work, which is a mining-based consensus algorithm, or it's electricity-based and it's called mining. That's what spits out your new Bitcoins. People are talking about moving to something called proof of stake, where you would stake some of your coins in to attest that you're not trying to do something malicious within the system. But again, it becomes that that money is that power. It's not based on a single human. It's, it's based on one human having access to a potentially large number of coins. And there's just no solution for one person, one identity. In order to solve identity in these decentralized systems, you also need to have individuals be the owners of their private keys that access that information. And I mean, I see how difficult it is to get my parents to be able to manage their passwords. <laughs> you know, do we really want them managing private keys that if they're irrevocably lost, you lose access to your insurance information? That's a great point. I yeah. mean, that's a really, or on the business side, you're talking about losing like company information yeah. in that type of key, right? And you can, you can shard private keys and store them separately. There are complicated, complex solutions to these problems. It's not like people don't have keys to manage now at enterprises, but individuals don't really. And so if we create a new class of third party companies that essentially custody people's private keys for them, then now we're just creating a different class of intermediary, right? That holds access. Access to everything. So yeah, it's uh, the cypherpunk dream where everyone becomes a cryptographer in their spare time probably isn't going to come to fruition. And unfortunately, I guess that that means that we'll probably see a whole new round of companies kind of coming in and being disruptive, but it doesn't necessarily redistribute the power in the system, quote unquote, back to the users the way that people expected it to. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that probably the limits of the human condition at this point in time is you can remember your own social security number, you can remember your birthday, you can remember things like that, that you've had to use like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times or whatever. But we definitely cannot remember all of our passwords. We can't keep our social security card safe in some cases. We lose our passports, like our physical passports at times. So to have people, you know, holding those keys I think is probably a bridge too far at this point, but that's potentially also, you know, like you said, an opportunity, but then it comes with, again, the third party holding that, all that stuff. You know, do you think that 
that type of like individual responsibility is something that will just be the new normal though someday. Like, I don't think we're ready for it right this second, but, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, the younger generation of folks that like, that's just what you do. Like they view that the same way that you view a social security number or something like that. Like you just, yeah, I, I know where my key is. I know where all of my Bitcoin is or whatever, or whatever the case may be. I think that the younger generation is going to figure out how to make themselves a data marketplace. And if we can have microtransactions where instead of giving away all your data for free, you can keep it so that it's actually scarce, which really does become a personal DRM solution <laughs> that you can rent, lease and sell your own data. Um, and that does sound onerous and terrible to a lot of people that probably don't have Instagram followings where they're trying to monetize likes right now. But I, I think that the younger generation is going to figure it out and make that thrive. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's a really good point that those are the things that, you know, we're coming. I was, I was talking to a startup, Wi-Fi coin. I don't know if you're familiar but the same sort of idea that it's like everyone has Wi-Fi available. Like what if you could make money on your Wi-Fi? Like are, what are some examples of some, you know, applications or some things on the blockchain that you're really, really excited about? I think microtransactions in general are, are pretty interesting. So the ability to fractionalize interests in things, whether that's physical things or data itself, is really unique and new and innovative and going to create many different types of classes of applications that are about the primary management of originating those kinds of tokens and data, and then the secondary markets that can you know, trade and probably securitize them into other markets. So it's, it's going to create entirely new financial asset classes, which is interesting. But it's always worth remembering that a tokenized settlement only matters for an asset if it's truly dematerialized into the blockchain. If something is a physical good like a house, it doesn't really matter if the blockchain says that you own the land title. What matters is physical occupation of that asset. We're not really able to obviate the need for the legal system and the government will probably still continue to tell you who really owns what through force. Well, they'll <laughs> be able to tell you when you owe taxes. That we know for sure. Yeah. If they're in charge of getting the tax money, they'll definitely find it. But imagine if you had a, a door lock. They have electronic door locks now. You can, you know, automatically unlock it for Amazon, apparently over the internet, which is terrifying from a security perspective. But, you know, if you had an IoT kind of enabled door lock and you were past due on your rent, would you become unable to access it? immediately if that payment wasn't made, right? So we need to think about the potential downstream impacts besides walking up and getting your zip car very quickly because of the IoT-enabled lock. You have to think about the other people, traditionally at the margins that depend on those couple extra days, that if we squish the margins and being able to enforce current legal agreements down to, to the wire, you know, we could do end up disenfranchising or hurting the most at-risk populations. What are some other applications then that, that you think are really interesting kind of going forward? I mean, it's it's always worth mentioning that cryptocurrency itself is a pretty useful application. It seems to be the only one that's actually out there in production people care about. Um, yeah, let's, I mean, you know, let's do it. Let's get into the blockchain and really, uh, really dive into cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all that stuff. It's actually a pretty, pretty topical right now because we're kind of in this lull. So you feel free to not, you know, like, I never talk about price. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Feel free to not talk about price. But yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on the cryptocurrency kind of like craziness that we've had for the past 18 months? It's 
been great to get a lot of people interested. And, you know, this kind of ebb and flow has happened in the cryptocurrency markets for years. So every time there's more and more people that now know what it is. I mean, when I started doing educational classes a couple of years ago, and I would ask, you know, how many people here have heard of Bitcoin, and maybe you'd get half the room and how many people have heard of, you know, literally any other coin, it was zero. And now it's just ubiquitous. I was at Princeton last week, and I asked how many of you or a friend may have invested in some ICO and like, you know, over 70% of the hands went up. Were they college students? Or was it like, who, who was in the room? These were graduate students across a variety of different disciplines. And that was beyond just, you know, owning Bitcoin, but actually had invested in some alternate ICO, which who knows how many of those will exist. But yeah, so you know, the capacity for censorship resistant payments <laughs> is never going to go away. People want to pay people and other people want to stop them from paying those people. And so that's that's a use case immemorial. As long as there is not free flow of capital and no capital controls globally as part of one world market, there, that's going to be a use case. But it's not a use case that resonates with most Americans or even most people just in the West. It is something that resonates in places like Venezuela or China or anywhere where traditional banking infrastructure is sparse. It's difficult to bank the unbanked sometimes with traditional financial services, but it's maybe a lot easier to just put a decentralized bank in somebody's pocket that never has to walk into a physical infrastructure kind of building and set up an account. They can just do it with their phone from day one. You know, it's really fascinating because that's the use case that I just never hear. I mean, I hear it shared in internally with folks that that we're meeting with at the mission, but it's not a widely spread kind of use case. And I think that people are so quick to rally against, you know, something new and saying like, oh, well, Bitcoin's never going to matter or blah, 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 blah. And it's like, do you realize that or like, oh, it's never going to be a use case? Like, yeah, we we use USD. We, I, we got no problems, folks. Or, you know, we don't have any problems right this second. But there are you know, millions and millions of people in the world that don't have that opportunity. And and I forget the exact person, but there was someone who had a group of, I believe it was Syrian women that were journalists that they were paying them in a form of cryptocurrency. And I don't know which one, but literally they couldn't make because of like their gender and where they were and a bunch of other things that were going on, they literally couldn't make money any other way. So they had to use cryptocurrency. It's like, go tell those people that it's not that it's not working, right? So I mean, and again, that's not I'm not saying that that is like the answer or, you know, anything like that. But it's a lens into what types of folks can use this technology for exponential impact. Mm -hmm. And it, it speaks to the kind of some of the naivete, I think, in the blockchain community writ large, where people are, are suddenly deciding that they should, quote unquote, decentralize the Internet. There have been projects, you know, to promote privacy on the internet and peer-to-peer -peer networking for, for years, whether it's Tor or Freenet or distributing binaries over Usenet or Pirate Bay. I mean, where there's a use case and a will, there's a way. But those things have never gained mainstream adoption. So I, I, I think we risk seeing history repeat itself with this new kind of cryptocurrency technology if it just becomes about, you know, we need to win hearts and minds of everybody or make them think that they're all going to make investment gains and that's why they're buying this. Instead, it needs to solve a, a real problem that people have in their daily life. I think that 
maybe sending payments faster for cross-border remittances? Absolutely. Uh, a $12 Western Union wire transfer is prohibitive if you want to send $20 overseas. Yeah, that's that's picked up. And there are companies, BitPesa and TransferWise and Abra. And there are a lot of successful companies that are, are doing that. But it's not the same thing about, as thinking about how are we going to replatform our aging mainframe uh, across the financial industry. It's it's completely different problems. And it's it's they're, they're not mutually exclusive, but they are somewhat orthogonal. It's, it's not really worthwhile to say one is real and one is not. I want to talk about Clover for a little bit. What was the need that you saw when you founded Clover? And what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah, I mean, all of the things that we're kind of talking about, right? Like, I think that people need to businesses as people <laughs> need to be able to to say that there's real value that they're deriving from this. You can't just just sell people that decentralization is better because decentralization. It's a tautology and it's only going to work as long as the, the white papers and the PowerPoints are fashionable. Instead, you need to be solving a problem not just as well as the current solution works, which to be fair across a lot of industries is pretty paperclip and bubblegum of infrastructure that's pretty bad, pretty inefficient, but it needs to do it much better than today's centralized solution. So what we're solving is not necessarily where the current technology doesn't work. So let's say, you know, a trade registry, for example, there, there have been proposed previously various registries where you can go document what assets you have. Perhaps those are some receivables in a receivables market. People sell the right to go collect on various receivables. It's this whole other market a lot of people don't know exist. You know, you can go and, and, and register those assets so that no one else can then register and try to collect on them. But the problem is that only the honest actors do that. The people that want to go pledge the same receivables multiple times and therefore, you know, essentially become over-levered, they, they just don't use those receivables windows. So what we're solving isn't a technology problem. It's not that the technology couldn't have made an asset registry. It's a human coordination problem that you can't really agree on what jurisdiction this, this the one true registry should sit in. And so you can collect or coordinate a variety of different registries that previously wouldn't have cooperated together. So I've heard you say before that Clover is kind of similar to Heroku and the fact that you can build and run blockchain applications. Now, how are you positioning like Clover in the market? You know, is it a network or can companies build on your platform? Kind of explain a little tactically how that works. Right. Yeah. You wanted me to actually talk about Clover. I just talk about the market again. I just, I, I get off and trying to, to design new systems. So the point is <laughs> you should be able to build that stuff, right? Right now, when companies come together and they decide they want to solve one of these coordination problems, they get pitched some blockchain as a service thing. You spin up whatever chosen network protocol you've got in one of the major clouds, probably, who gives you a bunch of credits to do that. Now you've got essentially a shared Excel spreadsheet and like now what first of all several of the enterprises you're working with might have signed a 10-year contract with one cloud and a bunch with another cloud and the third one because of regulatory reasons will only store data on premises there's no heterogeneous connected solution right now so that's day one that's groundwork that has to exist for these things to move to production but then on top of having that spreadsheet, you need to be able to actually do something meaningful there. The, the types of applications that you see in Pilot, a lot of the data or a lot of the integrations are kind of like hard-coded with the idea that, hey, this is just a proof of concept. We're going to replace this with the real thing later. For example, let's say you're in the financial industry and you need to know the LIBOR rate. You might just have that right now in like a text file or some you know market streaming API that you're just querying an API that has no necessary like veracity around it. That's a hack. 
And it shouldn't be like that in production. So having the ability to reach out to, say, a data provider, like maybe you use Bloomberg or Thomson Reuters, or maybe you're pulling from Moody's or S&P, and to access the data that you probably already pay for and pull it into this new distribution channel, like into this new spreadsheet and then do something with it, that's a very basic application or a basic kind of necessity to build a real financial application and just doesn't exist. And then beyond that, it's not just about finance, but you know, integration into your existing ERPs that you use or you know, additional kind of widgets that either you create internally or you access from a third-party marketplace that do useful things. Like why, if you need a document signing workflow, why do you want to rewrite that from scratch 50 times? There should be the equivalent of a, well, like a Salesforce plugin, <laughs> I guess, you know, that you can, you can activate and that will do something useful for you. We can standardize more code that way. We can promote more secure code reuse. We can get better visibility for people who are creating great widgets and don't know how to distribute them to enterprises. So there's just, there's a lot of problems to solve there. And it's just about making people's lives easier as they build these apps. Like, what does the future of the company infrastructure look like? Is there going to be, you know, blockchain division? Is it going to be like a section of the IT organization that has blockchain experts? Is it its own division, you know, like that stands next to IT and partners with business partners? Where does this kind of like fit into the organizational structure of a company? If you imagine it as being equivalent to internet plus database, you know, do you have like an internet team? I mean, maybe in the 90s you did, but, you know, I used to lead the kind of blockchain center of excellence at JP Morgan, right? And I would always say that I'll know at some point that I've succeeded when I no longer need to have that team because <laughs> there shouldn't be a single team that does that. It should be just a part of the general business process. But we're pretty far away from that in most, well, in all companies, yeah. Well, but then you would need to have an expert then on your team. Like I'm just thinking from, you know, from the CIO's perspective, from the, the technology leader within the organization, you need to have someone who is an expert at blockchain or at a minimum, you need to be an expert at blockchain, you know, right? That there is someone on your team that is looking at the latest trends that's seeing what opportunities there are and how it fits into the architecture of your company, right? Yeah, right now, absolutely. It's a, it's a specialized niche and having that person create some sort of education system to spread that awareness to other people in the company is a project in and of itself. And there's so much information out there and misinformation and, you know, biased information about what the technology could or should be doing that it's it's very difficult to simply train people up to be prepared for business transformation in a way that's about how are we going to drive client value from this technology rather than, you know, let's all debate the latest kind of blog post about this specific vendor's blockchain solution. So creating that takes some work, but I think 99.999% of businesses in the world have not actually experimented with blockchain yet. And that's because the, it's too cost prohibitive and uh, resource intensive to do so right now. It usually involves going to a, an expensive consulting firm, having them stand something up for you. And then after that, you can't necessarily maintain it yourself. It's, it definitely harkens back to the kind of cold fusion CGI bin websites of the 90s. You know, you get 200,000 lines of spaghetti code. So, and that, that's what the development process in blockchain looks like right now. So absolutely, that's one of the things we're working on at Clover is that as you mentioned, that kind of transitional model to Heroku plus Ruby on Rails, it's not that that's the exact analog, but it's that the 
ability to, you know, modularize and bring the stuff into modern DevOps processes and to have simple importable libraries that do useful things. And then, then you don't need a blockchain expert anymore. You have standard developers within your organization that have a problem they need to solve, like they need an audit log for this thing, or they need to have this document signing workflow, since we mentioned that, you know, they should be able to simply import that and, and go without needing to understand a specific type of, of hash power. At this point, if you sat down to build any application web app with your current design team and started by talking about packet exchange across a network, like that, that's not how we build websites. <laughs> yeah. So we just, we're just not there yet. So then what does the kind of distant future look like? What do you think, you know, the day-to-day life of your future customers look like? Ideally, they shouldn't, end users should not experience a difference. If you're visiting a quote-unquote decentralized website and it's fetching a file to show you from IPFS or Tahoe Laughs, these are like decentralized file stores, and it's showing that to you in your web browser, the only thing you're going to notice right now is that it takes longer than if that was hosted, edge-cached at a standard provider. Right? So right now, it just feels slower. But once you see the document, the document is the document. Most users are so abstracted away from that underlying architecture that it's a hard sell to, to get people to understand what the difference is. Now, if you, on an individual level, if you can monetize people differently or, or use individuals' data differently in traversing that web experience, then maybe we can incentivize them to switch. From a, a business perspective, I hope that the applications will usher in a a new kind of or yet another chance to modernize our applications so that they don't feel like capital E enterprise software that's terrible to use in 15 menus deep, but that we can make them more delightful for people in, in their regular day. But that's really up to the design process and it falls in with the rest of the digitization and modernization cues that you have. It's just if you're transitioning to blockchain, maybe now's the time to catalyze revisiting those processes and making things a little nicer for everyone. That's it with the regular questions. Let's get into lightning round. Let's get some fast and easy questions for you. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? That's the most fun? Yeah. Well, I'm like an actual video gamer, so I'm like PC Master Race, so I don't really game on my phone. But <laughs> I guess, you know... If you consider yelling at people on Twitter fun, then probably that. What's your favorite time-saving tool? I recently started using uh, Superhuman for my email, and it is actually very good UX workflow. So props to them. It's a pretty new startup, and they've got some really good tools. Interesting. I, I'll have to check that out. I'm always always curious in that. What's your favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? I mean, favorite would be an ironic... <laughs> sense. I I was fascinated by the relatively (laughs) naive chatbot that got loosed on Twitter and then turned into a Nazi very quickly. I think it's... uh, I did not see that. What was that? Oh, yeah. It's... um, I I don't want to name a bunch of names here. You can certainly Google it if you want to find out the full story. But yeah, I mean, the training data that informs most of our machine learning and AI models is um, problematic, (laughs) whether that's training mostly on open source data, which means that you're accessing data sets that are in the public commons, which means that they're older than, you know, X number of years, which means that they're probably skewed in the way that they represent people or the types of words that they use, to looking at past winners of beauty pageants to 
predict future winners and determining the like the pretty blonde white woman's always going to win. You know, <laughs> you know, we we run the risk that we are offloading the ability to decide what's true to them, and we we see what computers spit back to us as being very truthy. It's right because the computer said so. And there's a huge difference between trying to guess what a, a similar group of humans would have as an outcome versus emergent new thinking that would come out of these systems. And we don't really seem to to be there yet. It's the same problem with blockchain. People keep calling it the internet of trust. And like, it's not. Just because something's on a blockchain does not make it true. You can record fake news on a blockchain immutably, <laughs> but you you simply know when and by whom it was put there. You you have a lot of veracity about what happened within the system, but there's no claims made to the the truth of the the information that you find there in, in an external world. Favorite podcast or recent book? Podcast, if you're looking for blockchain-y things, I think Laura Shin's Unconfirmed and Unchained, there are two different ones, are both quite good. And I recently read The Value of Nothing, which was really interesting book about kind of the loss of the concept of commons and the, the changes in the financial system and the economy over the last couple hundred years that have led us to this kind of everyone knows the, the cost of everything and the value of nothing kind of capitalism. Any favorite shows or content you're watching? Well, I'm into the classics. You know, if I'm, I'm watching TV, I'm usually watching shows for a three-year-old. So when I get a chance, I'm probably watching the old stuff. You know, it's either X-Files or Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've watched a fair amount of Buffy in my day, so I appreciate it. What about favorite one-day getaway in New York? You're based in New York. Favorite one-day getaway in New York? I have a membership at the American Natural History Museum. I was just there last weekend. It's awesome. That's like the best thing about New York, right? Is that there's just anything that you want is is here and at huge scale. So you can really kind of spoil a kid when you can show them dinosaurs every time. But we we're just at the planetarium and I, I, I love Museum of Natural History. It's a great space. What is your best advice for a first-time CEO? Best advice for a first-time CEO? I, I think that economics and control are always balanced off against each other as you're figuring out how to build your company and finance your company and grow. So sticking to your guns about what it is that you don't want to give away, because once you cede control, it is incredibly hard to get it back. One of the, the great things I heard from, from Steve Blank was uh, your investor's business model becomes your business model. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's extremely true. Any other things that you're super excited about for the future of blockchain? I'm interested in just kind of seeing how this year progresses. And, you know, it's probably won't be down in the troughs forever. But the transition, the last time that we saw these kind of price increases was the initial influx of institutional money. And we're never really going to see another time where that audience isn't paying attention to this sector. So maybe the next time people who are kept out because of regulatory hurdles to engaging in cryptocurrency markets will drive some of the, the upswing because you'll have more adoption. But it's not really, you know, your kids on Reddit forums anymore that are driving these prices or, you know, accumulation. So I'm just curious to see how that all plays out. And I hope that people are taking the time now to just build what they believe in and that we'll actually get some M&A action going on. There's too many two-person teams out there, mine included probably, <laughs> um, that are, are working on similar things because there's not an incentive right now to need to collaborate or converge. And that creates bad solutions for end users because it's it's too much choice. We need to see some con consolidation. I love it. That's it for the lightning round. Fast and easy questions, not unlike 
Lightning Platform by Salesforce, which you can build AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, building apps is everyone's business. Learn more at salesforce.com slash build apps. That's it. That's all we got. Thanks so much for, for joining IT Visionaries. It was amazing. Yeah, amazing talking to you. And we're just really excited to see what you're building in Clover. And thanks for hanging out. Anytime. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps.